This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Native artists are building on the printmaking foundation from artists like Fritz Scholder and T.C. Cannon to express the stories and inspirations important to them. The process involves carving images into wood, linoleum, or even metal sheets, a method that is an art form all to itself. Today we'll hear from Native printmasters about what draws them to the craft and what the trends are in Native printing. Join us after National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The South Dakota House is advancing a proposal that designates lithium as a precious metal, like silver and gold. The move comes as interest in mining in the Black Hills increases. As South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger reports, a native state lawmaker opposes the bill, wanting protection of the Black Hills. Hard rock lithium is contained in crystals that form in pegmatite rock. To mine pegmatites in South Dakota, an operator must obtain a permit similar for those mining sand or gravel. Companies from around the world have expressed interest in mining in the Black Hills for lithium. Republican Representative Kirk Chafee lives near Sturgis in the northern Black Hills. He says the move subjects lithium to a state severance tax of 10% of net profits. So by calling it precious metals, there's actually provisions in the current statute that allows that, where it's more it's taxed on uh, the the net profit of lithium. So wherever it is in that stage of production, it would uh, it's taxed on that dollar amount. Chafee brought a bill last year to tax lithium. It failed in the Senate. He hopes pairing lithium with two other designated precious metals will convince the Republican-controlled Senate. A large majority of House lawmakers voted in favor of the idea. One lawmaker who voted against the proposal worries it incentivizes mining the Black Hills. I don't believe we should be mining in the Black Hills, period. Democratic Representative Puri Poirier is Oglala, Lakota. She worries about how mining will affect water quality in the Black Hills. Preserving its natural original state is the most important thing that we could do for um, the people of South Dakota, for the people of the Ochechi Shakui, um, and for our future generations coming up together. The State Department of Revenue opposed the bill last session. This year, they did not support or oppose the legislation, and it now heads to the Senate. For National Native News, I'm Lee Schrubinger in Pier. As many as 15 gray wolves could be reintroduced in Colorado's western slope next winter, according to Colorado Parks and Wildlife a move that concerns the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe in southwest Colorado. The state agency reached an agreement with the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation to collect the wolves on the tribe's land in eastern Washington. As KSJD's Chris Clements reports, a group has already been released. Ten wolves from Oregon were released in Colorado last month, the first batch under the state's reintroduction plan. 
However, the Ute Mountain Ute tribe says they were never properly consulted about the decision to reintroduce wolves to the state or the potential impacts it could have on the sovereign nation. Manuel Hart is chairman of the tribe and says he's worried about the depredation of already dwindling herds of cattle and horses. Hart says tribal members routinely bring their herds to the tribe's land in Gunnison County, like the 20,000-acre Pinecrest Ranch, which is near to where the next batch of wolves is likely to be released. The state of Colorado failed to notify both the Ute Mountain Ute and Southern Ute Indian tribe. So when they went through that initiative of the public voting on that from the state of Colorado citizens, then we were not included in that process. The Colorado plan calls for releasing 30 to 50 wolves on the western slope in the next three to five years. I'm Chris Clements. Lily Gladstone has been nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress and a leading role in Killers of the Flower Moon. Gladstone made history earlier this month, becoming the first Indigenous Best Actress Golden Globe winner. She's being recognized for her role as Molly Burkhart in the film, which tells the story of the murder of Osage people in Oklahoma during the 1920s for oil money. The Oscar nominations were announced Tuesday. The ceremony will be held in March. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Printmaking has a long history in Asian and European cultures, but some Native artists use traditional skills to carve their own paths in printmaking. Notable Native artists like Fritz Scholder and T.C. Cannon are renowned for their printing skills. Today we'll hear from Native artists who have mastered the printing art form. We'll talk about the different methods to get an image from inspiration to the page and why the process and the end product appeals to some artists. You can join us too. If you dabbled in printmaking, is it one of your favorite styles of art? Share your thoughts and perspectives by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Kingate in Nunavut, Canada is Nivyakse Hovenatuliak. He's a master printer at Kingate Studios, a print studio in Kingate. He's Inuit. Hello, Nivakse. Welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you for inviting me to your show. Absolutely. Joining us from Portland, Oregon is April Holder. She's a multidisciplinary artist, and she is Sac and Fox, Wichita, and Tonkawa. Good morning, April, and welcome to the show. Hello. Let's go ahead and get our conversation started. And Nivyakse, I'd like to go ahead and begin with you. What got you started doing printmaking? 
um, for me, uh, first thing I was in school and they got just to have a college uh, job replacement program back in small town like King Eight. And I attended that. So I have to attend other smaller businesses in across uh, King Eight. And one of them was print shop. So you got started there in school. And tell us more about the type of printmaking that you do, because there's a lot of different styles. I see lots of different images online. I'm looking at them now. Yes. Uh, mostly we'll work on uh, bar grain aluminum uh, for this 10 year. Um, we start, we usually ask artists uh, do a drawing on the, on the original drawing paper. Then we selected them and we asked them to come to our shop and start making some key plates into the color plates so we can start making into the prints. Mm -hmm. And Niv say is printmaking, is that an Inuit tradition? How, how did it develop among your people? Well, first thing is developing through stone cut. Um, uh, they have um, Jim Houston had to go to Japan to learn for the wood cutting. Then he came to back to King Knight and started doing under serpentine stone and started doing printmaking through the, they call it stone cut. And lithographic site, it started producing in 1974. And now it's not a traditional, it's been uh, lithographing here for hundreds and hundreds of years in across in Europe, and we find it adapting in King Eight. Now you mentioned wood, you mentioned stone. Which materials do you prefer to carve? Uh, for me, um, I'm, I'm working on I'm working lithographic. Mostly, I work with uh, bigram aluminum or mylar that can be drawn, and so we can shoot it in transfer into uh, one of those uh, uh, chemical process or into the positive plate. On the stone side, they have. Uh, serpentine, you used to, but no, serpentine is so soft, uh, they have to replace with a uh, pool table slave because pool table slave is a lot harder, and that's the time they start using uh, stone cut. Now, are those materials, are they readily available there where you live? Not, uh, no. And here in King 8, we got no pool hall or people to sell at the, at the store. Last time we got a pool table, it was kind of funny because we got donated from uh, one of the prison in Nunavut and they had to get rid of it and they realized we were using a pool table. So one of the prisoners who got released had to carry about about 8,000 uh, pounds of sleigh donated from us. So we're still using those right up to now. So you tore the, the pool table apart and, and used the slate for your, for your printmaking. Is that how it, uh, it worked? Yeah, yeah, that for the Stoken site. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit more about the print shop there where you work. Uh, what types of other equipment do you have and how big is it? Uh, this new building, we are in, uh, we're in the new building now. We just moved in 2018. Uh, um, before, we were at the old building. And this is the new, new building we're working on right now. It's very nice and updated. And all the stuff we use, like a ventilated system, is much better and it's safer for us, safer to use. And it's more like about, uh, I, know this, I don't know the size of the building accuracy. It's more like about uh, close to about 100 feet by 200, not too big. Mm -hmm. Well, walk us through the process of, of making your prints. I mean, from start to finish, how, how does it work? And what are the different tasks and 
and uh, and jobs that you have to do to complete uh, a successful print? Um, before I do anything, we use that. We ask we use uh, ask that artist to work on the on the bargain aluminum plate and start drawing on it with a corn's crayon pencils. Then after they finish, we call it processing. We start uh, etching it and rolling up and before we do the proofing and uh, processing all those uh, plates. It could be one or two plates. It depends on uh, uh, how many color we involve. Mm -hmm. And where do you get your designs? Uh, you mean the prints or the artwork? The artwork. The artwork usually came from the artist. Uh, we, uh, in King 8, we buy artists from locally and we bought it from them. Then we started selecting the prints we bought it from the artists and the, uh, the managers and, uh, and start selecting which kind of images they like to produce. When they, after they selected, then we asked the artists to come back in our shop and start um, making the color plates or key plates so we can start uh, working into the plates. And from the time an artist comes in and helps you with the plates, uh, how long does it take to have a finished product there? Uh, for the artist to draw, draw on the plate right away. So basically take a day or two, it depends on how much color involved. Then after that, we do processing, then we, then we ask the artist to select the colors or are they willing to keep the colors on the original drawing? same color or change it. So we used to ask the artist for their opinions. Okay. Now, are there other people that are doing this type of printmaking there in the community or are you one of the few with this skill? Uh, I'm one of the few skill with me here and my brother on the lithographic side. And there's uh, three skills on the stone side doing the printmaking. Mm-hmm. And Nivioxi, what is it that you like about printmaking? What makes it special compared to all the other types of art out there? Basically, the reason I love this art, uh, my work, because I have to work with the different artists and different images. That's so beautiful about it. So I don't have to work with one artist. So I work with the different artists, along with the old artists and new artists. So you have a wide range of artists that you're able to collaborate with. About how many different artists come to you for assistance with making these prints? Uh, every time we select one of their images, they, they have to come to our shop and work with me and I have to tell them uh, what to do and work on the plates because uh, when they start drawing on the plates, besides the paper, it's different. And sometimes the artists, sometimes they're afraid to touch the plates. I keep encouraging them. It's e easy to replace the mistake the plate you guys make or sometimes mistake always better. Mm -hmm. Now, what about the inks that you use? Tell us about those. Uh, we use Inco, Comico ink, uh, lithographic inks on, in our side. On the Stokan side, they use slightly use, they call it the ancient ink. Okay. And then once the, the prints are finished, what happens then? Do you give them back to the artist or do you help distribute them? Do you have a gallery? How does that work? Uh, in this uh, company, uh, Co-op West Baffin Eskimo Co-op, uh, the reason for back in uh, 19, earlier like that, uh, they make agreement with the artists. So we can make 50 uh, production on sale. 
the preachers get one, artists get one, plus on the they they call it a royal to pay. On top of that, they get pay on cyber for the artist. For me, I get paid by hours to make prints. Okay. Now, how far do artists travel to come use your services there? Well, here, small communities, uh, it's not too far, but here in Kingite, there's a couple of hills up and down road. So mostly for the elderly, it's kind of a little bit hard. For the younger generation, it's, it's no problem. But occasionally, we may have ask the artists, the older ones, if they willing to come uh, pick by a truck or a snowmobile, if they wanted to come to our shop. Mm. This is really fascinating just to, to learn about uh, the community where you live. And uh, it just sounds like a, a really exciting skill that you have, a gift, really. And um, working with the different, the stone, the serpentine especially, that seems like a difficult stone to work with. Is it, does it take a lot of, a lot of time and energy to, to get it the way you need it to be to, to make a good print? Uh, on those side, um, I don't work with the super team because of that's the one that still could use. But I, I keep watching them how they're doing it. They were saying, even though it's hard to work with it for chiseling, but they keep the straight line when they start printing. Because in the past, they used serpentines so soft, by the time they're halfway addition, some of the lines start chipping for, for this uh, pool table sleigh. It's uh, the lines still there. And, the one of the problem is slightly harder to chiselly. Mm -hmm. Well, Nibiyaksi, really appreciate you joining us today and uh, sharing your expertise and, and the skill that goes into uh, making prints there in none of it Canada where you live. We're going to talk to more printmaking specialists. We're also going to learn more about the process and, and how this type of art is um, celebrated in different Native communities. Give us a call if you're interested in learning more or you have a question about printmaking. 1-800-996-2848. One of the first steps in a major construction project is surveying the land for important cultural resources. But sometimes archaeological firms hired by developers either don't have the knowledge or motivation to point out sites that might slow the project down. We'll hear about inadequate cultural surveys on the next Native America Calling. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online master class in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. You are listening to Native America Calling, and we're talking about printmaking today. Do you know the difference between a print and a painting? Are you a fan of this style of art? Join our show today by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And on the line right now, we have a master printer from Nunavut, Canada, and Nibiyaksi, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about how printmaking became a part, big part of, of Inuit art. Tell us a little bit more about that history. 
Um, I'm not going to. Uh, I could tell you part of it because I mostly um, I, I I don't usually go uh, research on uh, especially my site because uh, for me like to me like I'm making prints and to me it's not look like a, a serious because I just work with the locals and back it's uh, uh, drawing. And King I usually start 1950s, around 50s early. And on the original drawings, then afterwards start carving. Then after that, uh, unless they just realized that maybe we can do more. And they start doing a um, stone cut printmaking on the pool tapers, uh, on the serpentine. And that's when they start making prints in early uh, 60s. Okay, so it goes back uh, quite a few decades then. Well, thanks again for all this information. Really, really interesting, fascinating to learn. And uh, I want to go ahead and bring another guest into our conversation. His name is John Hickok, and he is in Madison, Wisconsin. He's an artist, a printmaker, and he's also a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is Kiowa and Comanche. Hello, John, and welcome to the show. Hello, Sean. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Thank you. Yeah. John, what got you first interested in printmaking? I guess what got me, I'm from Oklahoma originally, and so I'm in Madison now. I teach at the university here, but I grew up there, and um, I got recruited at Cameron University in Lawton, and my professor, Kathy Leontis, taught lithography, and so I fell in love with the process of the meditative process of working on a stone and grinding the stone, drawing on it, etching it, and just that notion of space that you kind of go into when you're working on it. It was just, it was just really magical. And then after that, um, I pursued a music career and um, then didn't do well at it and ended up going to applied to grad school at Texas Tech in Lubbock, where I I switched over to screen printing. I started using the screen printing process and also leaf cut. Okay. And now other native artists, were there some that inspired you or did you just kind of develop your own art form? So at the time, um, I was inspired by young art or elder artists that were around in Oklahoma. I looked at like Woody Crumbo, who was an artist that, you know, we all saw his work and particularly screen prints and, uh, T.C. Cannon, who's from the, uh, I grew up in the, the area of Medicine Park, which is not far from Carnegie and from that area. And so seeing T.C. Cannon's work also around, and I saw Fritz Shoulders too back, you know, when I was young. And so seeing these important artists, but in the sense of printmaking, you could see how the multiple was used. And I, I my aunt lived in Albuquerque, and so we would go up to Santa Fe and when I was young, I would see these prints, and, and I thought those were incredible, like what, what that process was. But actually, in grad school um, at Texas Tech, uh, a noted artist, Edgar Heapabirds, was at University of Oklahoma, and I I got to meet him and also see some of the prints that he was making. And then I also, in teaching in the university, I actually, when I was out of grad school, I got a job teaching, and I met uh, Melanie Yazzie and then John Quick to see Smith were two important figure, figures to me. And then, then Neil Ambrose Smith, her son, who also runs in the same printmaking circles. And so that was uh, an introduction to people in the field that kind of inspired me, but also uh, we promoted you know, each other and helped others and, and kind of helped me when I was young, but also now I'm looking at working with um, young artists coming up and 
um, helping them within uh, teaching and education and in the university. John, what are the different types of printmaking that are out there, and, and what do you see is most popular among Native artists? I, 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 there's so many types of printmaking. I, I think, um, like, lithography is one form. It's a reproducible form. You know, it was originally used to make newspapers, and I think a movable type, and I, I think of um, how printmaking in relationship to screen printing. And if you think of water as life and uh, land back and political social movements and how young people are using print media, that's easy to wash up. So uh, water-based screen printing is the the medium that's easy to clean up, but also portable. And then there's the oil-based ink. So you've got these dichotomies of these two spaces of water-based versus oil-based. And I think it's a kind of unique but problematic thing because they're both resources that that uh, affect our planet and affect us. John, I'm also interested to know, because there's been so much technology in recent years with uh, just the ability to print different types of pictures and illustrations, and um, I wonder at all, does that technology, does it influence the way some of these traditional skills are employed, or is there, there always room for folks that are just doing some of this work by hand? I think it's both. I, I, th- I think the use of, we're, we're, we're very adept to using social media in various contexts, but we're also used to manipulating images on our phones, um, also through the computer, and turning those into drawings that could be easily reproduced to transparencies or printed out and then looked at and drawn from. And so I think the multiple ability to think about how an image can translate and digital media is definitely functional, but I think we still, I do personally feel that the drawn hands cutting the block, hands drawing on the plate or the stone, there is so much um, power in that. However, the manipulation of use of digital media is a part of our, our, our lives within print culture. So I think it's a, it's a kind of a catch. You know, they're both very important. Now, the process obviously re- requires a, a certain level of technical skill. How long did it take you to develop that skill? And um, just how difficult is it for anybody listening to the show right now, maybe interested in trying it? It's not that difficult in some cases. I, I think that like, there's easy go-to process that can get you going, which would be relief cut, which relief on a wood or linoleum or a surface that's cuttable that you can use um, uh, woodcut tools to cut into and then print off with a barren, barren and put paper on that and print off of it. So that's one of the easiest methods to use. And now you can Google or uh, YouTube and find so many teaching methods out there. I learn new stuff every day from my students because they're saying, have you seen this video? Have you seen this TikTok? Have you seen this? And it's kind of amazing what's happening with the resurgence of various printing techniques. The other one would be screen printing. I think screen printing is a method that you can pretty much buy a screen printing kit at any type of art store. You can order a kit for under 50 bucks to do mm-hmm. printing where you could do um, you can you can do screen printing with water-based ink and I think that's the other thing is you can actually get transparencies made 
through various sources now, and and it, it's it's really changed over the year. I've been teaching 23 years here at Madison, and I've seen over the years how printing is is really um, become more easily adaptable to our 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 society to use. John, a person listening to our show today in hearing terms like screen printing, they might be thinking about t-shirts and screen printed t-shirts. Yep. Uh, where do, where does that skill fit in with what we're talking about today in the grand scheme of printmaking? I think um, if we think fine art and this notion of a marketable selling object and what does that mean? And so for some context that that might be someone who does create a design company and a startup company that's making, you know, incredible images and they're putting them on t-shirts and those t-shirts can be used as almost in a sense a political um, uh, situation too, to get the viewers, uh, get the image out to various viewers by use of media. And I think that's one of the things, if you look at how traditionally uh, prints on paper or prints on uh, that are collected and put into galleries, museums, or homes, that we've kind of have a different way of also looking at the everyday. Everybody who uses a cell phone, you're using print media. If you're texting, you're using type that came from movable type that came from the letterpress. So historically, printmaking's contributed to the shift in our culture. Um, it's contributed heavily to where we're at, but also how it's affected us because of, of, of the knowledge and of the technology. What are some other applications for screen printing? Uh, I think in industry, um, the first screen printing class ever taught in a university or an institution in the United States was here at uh, Madison, Wisconsin. And screen printing was done like 40s, 50s in industry, say printing on um, bottles and boxes. And so the professor who started the, the screen printing program here, <clears throat> he basically worked in the industry, but he also taught uh, painting and drawing and uh, etching. And he started to combine his etchings with screen printing. Dean Meeker is his name. And he, he was the first in the 50s to actually teach a class because the grad students wanted to work with that medium. And and so screen printing itself is, we call it serigraphy, which means uh, silk graph. And really, we don't use silk anymore. It's... it's um, it's monofilament polyester. So that's something you could buy at a fabric store. And so that fabric itself is monofilament polyester, but screen printing is kind of the name that we call it now and water-based screen printing. And John, as an artist, as a printmaker, and as somebody who just admires great artwork, what is it about printmaking? What is it about taking an image and creating a print of it that makes it different than, say, drawing a picture or painting a picture or, or some other type of illustration? I think that's, you, you hit it right there. Drawing a picture or painting a picture, you can do both of those with printmaking. And that's what's amazing to me is that in, when you do those, you can also make multiples of them. So let's say that we paint, a, take a painting and then we recreate a version of that on a stone with tush wash or with different process that we can use, you can also kind of recreate a style or a look that has 
painted elements to it, but then you apply ink onto that and print from it. And then you can make an addition of, say, a 50 to 100 to, you know, these are fine art prints, and they're very similar to each other. And then for drawing, if you're doing a drawing on a stone, stone litho, or you're doing an etching, an etched line into a plate, you can get these incredible marks that are not quite the same as just drawing directly on paper because you're making this impression from a matrix, and that matrix has the ability to speak another language. And so I think when you see this new language happening through visual image, it really transforms an artist to make them think differently. And I think that's an interesting thing about when a viewer looks at a painting versus a print, that it's, it's actually looking at two different languages. However, those languages can have communication to each other. And John, who are some contemporary native printmakers whose work you really admire? I'd have to say that um, definitely Jean Quictesy Smith has done more for the field than so many uh, artists that, that have been out there that it's incredible and uh, uh, what she's done for um, the indigenous or native communities. It's, it's very um, amazing what she's done for, for all of us. And some of the other artists that I, I look to, um, with Jeffrey Gibson, who's a current uh, um, he's going to be representing uh, the United States at the uh, Venice Biennale is another incredible artist that uses print media. He actually prints work here at Tandem Press. We have a press called Tandem Press that we do print artists. Uh, other artists, uh, Marie Watt and uh, Deani Whitehawk, who use printmaking. Deani Whitehawk worked at a press called High Point in Minneapolis and created an incredible series of screen prints that are just beautiful. And um, Wendy Redstar, who's also worked with Crow Shadow, and I think Crow Shadow, which um, is an organ, has done so much also for printmaking. It started by Jay Lavendor, I think well over 20 years ago. And what, what uh, if you look at Crow Shadow's work, if you go online and look at it, you're going to see a roster of incredible artists that are um, making contemporary prints. Our next guest is April Holder, and she's in Portland, Oregon. She's a multidisciplinary artist. April, I want to get your thoughts, and what do you think makes printmaking different than other types of artwork? I think that it makes it different because, um, similar to what John said, you apply different skill set in the creation of printmaking, um, and it has... Uh, this wonderful marriage of skills and uh, craft and discipline in it, but it transforms um, our ideas of like accessibility of the work itself. Um, I think of it in terms of with with painting and sculpture. Sometimes you have to go to a location to to see it and sort of be involved with that work in like a museum setting or a gallery setting. And you can do that too with prints, but also because they can be produced again and again, it allows people to have a personal experience with that art. They can own a print and have it in their home to create their own gallery experience and art experience with a work. And it's so personal. I think that that's a really different aspect of printmaking than other art forms. 
April, we shared a photo of your buffalo print on our Native America Calling Facebook page. But for our listeners, uh, just just briefly describe that piece for us and what makes it so special. The buffalo print, it started as a project I did in 2021 uh, while I was um, artist in residence at uh, IAIA. And the original concept behind it was that um, a lot of times we don't, uh, when we when we create work, and there's a term called like um, uh, p- public art, right? Uh, uh, that's supposed to be available to everyone. But if you're a part of Native community, and um, for everyone who's kind of like lived in Native community, we realize that there are things within our communities that doesn't always allow that accessibility, whether it's we live in very rural areas or um, even within our community, we have relatives who are like, sometimes they're in um, nursing home care facilities, sometimes they're in recovery facilities, uh, sometimes they're incarcerated. And so the project with the Buffalo was to okay. allow people April, to do me a favor, hold that thought. We're going to have to take a break. But when we come back, I, I want to hear more about the inspiration for your Buffalo print. Give us a call, listeners, with questions or comments about native printmaking, one 800 9962848 Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, Commercial auto and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, and we're talking with Native printmakers today. They use a variety of tools and methods to make what is essentially a type of stamp using a block of carved wood or linoleum, or sometimes a screen that allows artists to make several copies of their work. We're at 1-800-996-2848 to ask a question or share a comment. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We have April Holder on the line right now. She is a Sac and Fox, Wichita, and Tonkawa artist. And April, before break, you were sharing a little bit about the inspiration of your buffalo print that's on our Facebook page. Please continue. Oh, like I was saying... um the the thought process behind the buffalo is uh, one of the for me one of the conceptual things about printmaking that is amazing, which is you're able to provide accessibility to many people with a print. I think I mentioned this earlier, as opposed to like an individual painting um, that's usually like in a museum setting or a gallery setting. Printmaking allows your art to be accessible to many people in person for them to have the the visceral experience of like owning the art and having it in their home. Um, And with the Buffalo project, what I wanted to do was to take that image and that symbol that the Buffalo is for many native people of, of strength um, and put it in the hands of as much of the community as I could. So with that project, and originally I, put out a call when I when I created the prints and each one's made by hand it's the um, linoleum uh, carved process and they're also hand burnished they're not run through a press Mm -hmm. and so each one um, was made by my hand so 
so it still holds a lot of that integrity that like drawings do and and paintings do um but i put out a call on like my social media and i just let people know if you have relatives who like i said were in uh, nursing home facilities in in recovery care or incarcerated let me know and I'll send you a print to send to them because there's a really beautiful thing about Native community, which is no one is ever not welcomed in community. We may be separated by distance, but they're still with us. And so I wanted to um, translate that through my art. And, and thankfully, printmaking allows that to happen. Um, it's a really beautiful process. And I, I think that that's one of the best things about it is the immense accessibility of it. April, I'm still admiring the picture of your buffalo print here on our Facebook page. And uh, tell me a little bit more about the tools you use, because I know linoleum, that, that's a hard surface. You've got to really work it to get those, get those grooves in there and get those images. You know, it's actually really soft compared to like woodblock. Um, I had done another buffalo print prior on a woodblock, and um, Man, let me tell you, I got myself some splinters and, and blisters doing that. <laughs> um, but it's just, it's regular uh, uh, carving tools. And uh, that's a really cool part of printmaking as well, is um, the carving of it, the, the, the drawing the image first, and then the carving. You kind of get to really dig into multiple um, forms of, of mark making in the process and uh, linoleum is really great because it does that. And then it's so durable that that, um, that linoleum has lasted for years. I've just recently retired it, um, mm -hmm. but it lasted for years, you know? <laughs> well, April, when I see squares of linoleum like this, I think of like when I was a kid, we had a linoleum kitchen floor and I remember we had an extra box of the tiles that weren't used. And, I mean, I'm thinking a person could even use a tile like that if they needed to, couldn't they? Oh, absolutely. And people should. You know, uh, printmaking is a really interesting process. And uh, like John mentioned earlier, you can learn it and um, develop your skill in it. And it's wonderful because the materials that you can use to do it, like I said, my process, I don't even use a press. I do a hand burnish process. Um those things allow people to kind of not rely so heavily on a formality of, of, of like a certain studio setting to create the work or even the materials themselves. And Native art and, and Native art history, we, we are people who are very experienced in adapting, right? And we adapt our, our forms of expression and our visual language. Mm, good point, April. Really good point. Let's take our first caller of the day, Alex, who is listening in Albuquerque, New Mexico on KUNM. Hello, Alex. Welcome to Native America Calling. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I understand you're a big fan of printmaking. I absolutely am. It's one of my favorite practices, actually. <laughs> oh, and it sounds like the rooster likes it, too. Well, well tell us, how did you get into printmaking, Alex? Oh, I actually um, studied at the University of New Mexico in my undergrad, and I slowly began to shift from... <laughs> there we go again. Oh, those roosters like printmaking, hey. 
but so I started in, in painting a lot, and what I came to found, find during those practices is that it it became a little bit too egotistical for me, and they tended to, uh, you know, a lot of these Native American artists tended to harp on the individuality of their own practices without necessarily reaching outside of themselves and once I got a little bored of that egotism I more or less moved into uh, printmaking because it was a more community-based art form rather than that of just painting. Alex that's a really interesting comment. I appreciate you calling today. Uh, printmaking more community-based and April I want to get your thoughts on that. Would you agree that the printmaking culture is a little bit more maybe a little bit less um, a little bit less condescending? I guess that's the word I would use maybe and a little bit more community-based because and you also did a lot of your training in New Mexico as well. Talk about that. Um, I absolutely think that printmaking is uh, it's conducive to community-based. Uh, I, I think that uh, a lot of different artists seek to expand the possibilities of what their medium is to incorporate community. And if there's one thing that Native artists, um, I think, now more than ever are seeking to do is to create that community with their art, uh, and printmaking is a wonderful vehicle for that. Um, thankfully, Native communities, we are not in scarcity of creative genius. Um, we have it in all spectrums of our communities, from our, our elders to even our children. And printmaking is one of those really amazing processes that it can be taught and shared, and uh, it can allow for a lot of collaboration to exist. So um, I think that that's a, a really beautiful aspect of it. Now, you attended the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Is that where you were first introduced to printmaking, or were you already involved in it? Uh, yes, it was. It was where I, I first got my uh, introduction to it. And uh, my professors in printmaking were uh, Charlene Teeters and Don Messick. And at the time I um, was attending IA doing my undergrad, they had actually converted their studio over to where we did all um, – uh, water-based inks, and we try to abide by things as um, eco-friendly as possible. So it was a really wonderful experience for me to get familiarized with a process that does as little damage to the environment as possible. And it's a practice I still um, hold today with my work and using uh, uh, water-soluble inks and things that are um, not just safe for the environment, but also safe for myself as an artist. And the water-soluble inks and some of the other materials, um, what's the cost for some of the, some of those supplies? I'm just, I mean, you mentioned that it's a, an affordable way to do artwork, and what, what would it cost somebody to just get started in doing some of these projects? Oh, well, um, I mean, it, it kind of varies from uh, what what you have access to in far, uh, as like, far as like art supply stores. But I think like a good um, little jar of ink and roller and stuff, none of that should probably cost anyone more than 60 bucks altogether. Now, the, the grade of like paper or, or surface you're printing on can um, change that because just different papers are more expensive than others. Um, 
but uh, it, it, sh- it sh- I don't think it should put anyone out really bad uh, financially to start the process of making work and to make multiple prints. You can get a small square of like linoleum just to start and practice with, and those cost like five dollars. Mm. Yeah, that's really affordable. April, I'm interested in learning more about printmaking in in music. We do a lot of native music shows here, and is there a connection there between those two disciplines? Printmaking and music. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I know a lot of native printmakers who are musicians. So not myself because I'm not musically inclined okay. whatsoever, but well, um, but I do know many that are, and I would like to think that they kind of combine those things as there's a, a cathartic sort of practice that comes with printmaking, and I think for musicians, it it's the it's that same translation of that like rhythmic practice and and repetition, and uh, those things that uh, help form uh, what they're doing creatively. Okay. All right. That helps. Yeah. Cause I'm thinking of like the concert posters and poster art that you see like, oh, associated yeah. with a lot of music and stuff. Let's go ahead and ask um, John to comment. Cause John, I know you are, you are a musician as well as a printer. And, and what do you see in terms of a connection between printmaking and the music scene? Uh, I think there's a unique kind of uh, approach to um, musicians that, make art because they're thinking about if you play in a like i play in bands and so i think about the print lab the same way because if you're in a lab you're working with uh or working in a print shop or working with multiple people because april talked about community printmaking is about community so if you're working with multiple people in a space working on prints and sharing you're you're looking at the way that a band works together or an orchestra or a group of people playing music they're they're basically laying down a layer like a layer of like an undertone or they're putting down the the sound Mm -hmm. for a song and then there's going to be another layer that's going to go over the top of that which might be a cymbal crash or then on top of that might be a guitar rhythm and so the rhythm's happening it's about rhythm and it's about how repetition starts to happen and then on top of that the bass joins in and then you've got this finished piece which in the end is a song but it's the same way with making prints you know it's the same yeah, thing you're just, yeah. you're just jamming but you're jamming on paper i really like that analogy john that's really cool and and we have shared some photos of your print art on our facebook page too and we also have a photo on facebook of Nivioxi. And uh, he is working in his print shop there in Kingate, and he's working on a lithograph. And Nibiaxi, I want to bring you into the conversation as well as we wind down the show. And I'm curious to know if you're working with anybody, if you have any apprentices or anybody young that you're training uh, on this skill of printmaking that you have. Yes, I am. I got a young apprentice right here. Uh, right uh, Last year, I let him work in his his first addition on site, he went well. So this year again, I'm going to let me do another um, processing, another making prints for the part of the collection. And we'll tell us more about your apprentice. Is he a relative or just somebody in the community there? Uh, some community, but he's one of my good friends of his son. So uh, right now he's young. He's about over 20 years old and he's 
willing to learn more, that's where uh, he asked me to do to do more other uh, project for him to help him, and I'll be his assistant while he's doing making prints. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, Nibiakse. And April, I want to go back to you now. And, and what do you see going forward? What is the future of Native printmaking that you envision? Oh, it's limitless. <laughs> like The future of, of Native printmaking is full of possibilities. And you kind of touched on something which, uh, like, there are so many Native printmakers that are musicians. I would love to someday see a series of a collaboration, like a visual symphony or, or um, a concert from all, all these Native uh, musicians and printmakers. Mm. You know, those, those types of things. We should uh, be investing in those projects and bringing them into fruition because uh, there is a great deal of um, brilliance out there, and it, it deserves to be celebrated. And John, how about you? What excites you most about the future of Native printmaking? Wow, I'm, I'm I'm deep in this visual symphony right now. <laughs> April, I'm writing this down. I'm like, <laughs> that that is awesome because the the what's the, I'm sorry, what was the question again? Because I was deep in that thought. I don't know, but wow, we've got a a brainchild here developed at Native America Calling with this uh, musical printmaking connection. But no, I'm just asking you, what are you most excited about for the future? In addition to perhaps uh, this uh, this symphony that you and April might partner on in the future. That's what I'm thinking. Is like this is the time now. There's so many uh, artists, native artists, that use print and that are musicians, and that think visually and work within ink and paper and sound. It's like this is exciting. But again, yeah, that the idea of community and the idea of crossing over to communities and collaboration with with different tribes, with different nations, and how that can happen too. Even when I think about movable type and how uh, tribes turning type into uh, texting information, but how in the future, how can we look at, you know, printed words and our, our, our languages and how can the languages be a, um, a huge component of how print, printmaking functions and how do we also proliferate language through print and conversation by getting together and, and working together in, in different spaces. Well, that is a good note to end on. We are out of time, so we're going to have to wrap up the show. But big thanks to our three guests who joined us today to talk about Native printmaking, past, present, and the future. Hope you can join us again tomorrow on Native America Calling. We'll have a conversation about how the push for development, even environmentally beneficial projects, can ignore important cultural resources. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day. Pursuing a degree in higher education is attainable, and with a scholarship from Native Forward Scholars Fund, it is more affordable. From aerospace to veterinary medicine, as the largest direct scholarship provider to Native students in the U.S., Native Forward has empowered over 22,000 students from over 500 tribes in all 50 states in pursuit of their undergraduate, graduate, and professional degrees. Info and applications at nativeforward.org, who support this show. 
Happy New Year. Now is a great time to start the new habit that will keep you healthy. Eat right, get plenty of exercise, enough sleep are the key to health lifestyle. Talk with your health care provider about change you can make to the new year beyond your best site. For more information, contact your Indian health care provider or visit healthcare.gov. A message from a Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.